Welcome to episode 88 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversation with Sycamore trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on your podcast player of choice or by going to sycamore.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This show is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Richard Casper, the United States Marine combat veteran, Purple Heart recipient, artist, and entrepreneur. He is the co-founder and executive director of Creative Vets, a nonprofit that provides art, music, and writing programs for wounded veterans with post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injuries. To find out more about Richard by checking out his bio on our show notes, let's get into my conversation with him and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. So, Rich, it's always great to connect with you, and it's great to be able to share your story and the work that you do for our fellow veterans. A lot of times when I have these conversations, I like to start off with the story behind the organizations, why you're doing what you're doing. But for you specifically, the story is so much part of the work that you're doing. How about you share with the audience, and we start off in the beginning, Marine Corps Boot Camp. So my intention for Marine Corps boot camp was a lot different than what ended up turning out. I joined 2003. I only had two weeks out of high school, went straight to boot camp because I, like many other Americans around that time, 2001-ish, I signed up because of 9-11 and the first opportunity I got to go serve was two weeks out of high school. And so I get to boot camp running and gunning, thinking I'm going to be Marine Corps infantry, first one overseas fighting for my country. And I get roadblocked really quickly as a group called Special Testers. And at the time, I didn't know what Special Tester was. I honestly thought they thought I was dumb or something. And we were going with other Special Marines over to this area. But that wasn't the case at all. Ended up being a crazy opportunity, one that I honestly couldn't turn down. And it was a, it's called the Yankee White Program. And that's truly what it's called, not the Special Tester Program, because that probably wouldn't market well anyways. But it was Yankee White Program, which allowed me to either guard the President of the United States at Camp David or White House Communications. And so I thought this was crazy because it took about two months into the three-month boot camp to find out what we were actually doing. It started with a lot of psychological testing, a lot of, do you talk in your sleep? Do you have family members that go over the country? How much money do you have? All those things that they might think would make you impressionable to people asking you certain questions or getting you to do certain things. So having a background of of family who are kind of honestly really poor and a lot of siblings in in jail and prison, I didn't think I was ever going to even get this opportunity. So I went along with it, but not thinking I was going to actually end up getting it. And lo and behold, it went from 400 Marines to 20 of us. And I was one of them. And I was selected to, to guard the President of the United States. And so my life drastically changed. I had to go to the School of Infantry just like a normal instrument. But from there, I had to depart and go to Security Force School where all my friends were going over to Iraq. And if you imagine around November, December timeframe in 2003, the first push to Fallujah. And in the Marine Corps, we call them boots. I was a boot. All my friends from my class went over. And I lost a bunch of them. I lost, like my name's Casper, so I was right across from Cherry, and I was right across from Cartwright, and then Horn was right here. Longoria was just down past Horn. All four of them died. 
because they're one of the first people going over. And so before I even could touch down in war, I had survivor guilt. I had this idea that I should be there. Like, why am I not there? But I kept trucking on and I went through my process of going to DC for 11 months, getting my clearance to go through, and then finally to Camp David. And I chose Camp David because it's up in the woods and I'm more of a country boy. And I was like, I'd rather have this than on an Air Force base somewhere flying around with the president. I chose the woods. So I was up there for about 14 months when I finally made the decision that I need to need to do what I joined the Marine Corps to do. And I decided from there, I wanted to go to Iraq. And that's one of the things in a lot of the different things that amaze me about your story, Rich, is that you could have stayed there. You could have stayed at Camp David. You didn't intend to do 20 years in the Marines. You were going to do your stint and you were going to get out and you could have stayed in Camp David safely. But instead, you chose to volunteer to go to combat. It was a weird feeling, too, because... It was such a cushy job and you typically would only get 14 to 16 months up there before you'd separate, but they were low on bodies. And the first sergeant still asked me saying, Hey, we definitely would keep you here if you want to stay here. But I just, I, I remember replaying in my head, like, how would I feel if I was like 16 and someone asked me about my service and I didn't go, would I feel okay with that? And I honestly felt like I would. I was kind of thinking like the no regrets thing. I was like, will I have regrets? If there was an inkling that I would have a regret, I wasn't going to do it. So I just said, I have to go. I have to follow my heart and do what I think I need to do. And again, a big part of that, I think, was that survivor guilt holding on to my friends doing it. So like, if they're going to suffer, why not me suffer? Or this whole God complex being like, I can go over there. I won't die. I could serve my country and I could do these things because that's what I was put here on earth to do. And maybe they won't have to sacrifice that. So I went to a unit called 2-7 and I did a workup with them for a while thinking I was going to go to Iraq with them. And uh, it didn't take but maybe two months there when they brought up the bad news saying, hey, Richard, by the way, you don't make our deployment. You get out in June 2007 and we don't even leave for Iraq in January. So you don't make our deployment. You'll have to stay back. And I was like, well, I can't do that. That's why I transitioned out here. Is there another unit going? But just my luck, there was a unit. It was first tank battalion. It was a tow gunner unit. And they said this tow gunner unit just got a boot drop. A ton of Marines from just straight out of boot camp. And they have no NCOs and nobody with combat experience. So they ended up pulling 18 Marines from 2-7 and just plopping them in this tow gun unit. And me and my buddy Jerry Durbin, who was also at Camp David with me, ended up there with everyone else being combat veterans. And so we're the only kind of noobs to war, but we were both highly motivated. And the only two that volunteered, everyone else from 2-7 already had two deployments under their belt and definitely didn't want to go. So we had to, I had to actually extend one month in the Marine Corps. It was one month just to go to war with first toes. Because again, I didn't even know you could extend or I would have stayed with 2-7. But I learned that when I was at toes and they told me I also couldn't go with them. So I was like, what's the guy got to do to get to Iraq around here? And they said, you could extend one month in the Marine Corps, two months, three months, six months, whatever you want. I was like, okay, one month, that is. And so I, I ended up going to Iraq with this tow unit. Became very close friends with my gunner. I was the vehicle commander of the first truck as a four truck little squad and patrolled MSR Mobile. And within the first four months, he was shot and killed, and my Humvee was blown up four separate times, leading to a traumatic brain injury. And I think that's really where, like you said, you think you're going to go over there, what's going to happen to me? I mean, we, we all had that. You and I had talked about that before. I had an opportunity similar to yours where I could have stayed on recruiting duty and not gone to combat. And for the same same reasons you did, not wanting to have the regrets, the wanting to lead troops in combat, that kind of thing. But then that significantly changed your life. You were going to get out anyway. But you went from, I'm going to get out, I'm a combat vet, to now I'm a severely wounded combat vet that has 
some significant trauma that I'm trying to deal with. Yeah. And the crazy thing about that was I didn't know I had the trauma. I figured that, you know, after the four months, I'm there for seven months total, but the first four months I'm considered unfit for duty. So for the next few months, I'm just waiting to take a plane ride back home. They're not sending me to get CAT scan, not sending me to do anything outside of just staying on base and doing no brainer stuff. I legitimately didn't have to use my brain. That's why I didn't know I had brain issues. Besides my migraines I had constantly, they were slowly going away. I'd have them for days straight. And then they'd only be like eight hours in a day or 12 hours in a day or sporadic. Or some days I would have hardly have them. The other days I would, but it still felt like it was trending downward. So I just thought I was really rocked and didn't know what. And plus, I I didn't really deal with the death of my friend either. So I wasn't like feeling anxious. I wasn't feeling issues with that while I was overseas. And so I touched down and I check out of the Marine Corps, don't seek help. So I didn't get medically separated. I just thought I was fine. And I remember seeing a report afterwards, but it said something like PTSD doesn't really manifest about 90 to 100 days out of service typically or something. Data might have changed since I saw that a long time ago, but that's kind of right on point with what happened to me because it was right around when I started going to college. Again, I think the very first semester, I didn't have anxiety or depression, but I had, that's where I found out my brain injury because I started failing all my classes. Then after I started failing my classes, I started getting really sick the next semester, not being able to go to class and other things like physically throw up if I had to give a speech that day. And I started taking a bad, bad turn and, and I was trying to study entrepreneurship and business. I figured, you know what, there's two options for me after serving at Camp David is a three-lettered agency like CIA, FBI or something, but I want to be an agent. I don't want to be anything else, which I need a degree for. So get my degree, but I'll do it in business in case that doesn't work out and I could be an entrepreneur or something else. But after failing that class and starting to get sick and seeing there's real big issues there, that's the first time I ever went to the VA hospital. I checked in, told them what I did, what happened to me, and I ended up being diagnosed with my electrotraumatic brain injury and my PTSD and tinnitus and dysprotrusion and arthritis and all these other things I had no idea. I even had, and it just went, I just went even darker into a hole because as you know, in 2007, there wasn't a lot of, of support for TBIs and PTS, even in the VA space. And so everyone was getting ratings of 30% at the time and they didn't really fully understand it. I didn't understand it. So I just was like, okay, what now? And they said, Hey, if your brain doesn't get better in a few years, it probably won't get better. So even the messaging around it wasn't very helpful. And so I went down a bad path, but I was still always very optimistic about life and thought, you know what, even though I can't do a lot of stuff I used to do, I still believe I can get into this three-letter agency if I just get a degree. So if I'm failing these classes because I can't learn new technical skills and other things, what if I had to do something that wasn't very technical, like art? I was like, I could do art. I could be around kids who don't want to talk to me and I don't want to talk to them. The very artist type, that's my brainwaves at this time. An easy degree, I'll skate through it at this community college in Bloomington, Illinois, Heartland Community College. Shout out. And I ended up just diving in and drawing and painting and creative writing. But the thing that really helped me, because all of it was therapeutic, because I wasn't really thinking about war when I was doing it, which was helpful. But the thing that kind of like really changed my whole trajectory in life was having a really good teacher who taught me how to use conceptual art and concept behind one of my stories. He knew I was dealing with something. I told him a little bit about my issues only because I had to report my disabilities to him and tell him why I wasn't talking to anybody and doing the normal critiques like everyone else was. And uh, I ended up doing this chalk pastel drawing of me at my gunner's grave because I go visit him every single year in Houston, Texas. I haven't missed a year since. And I even had to take a final from his mom's house because I was not going to miss that day. And I told the teacher she could fail me, but I was going to visit my friend. And oh, wait, I, I'm sorry, my brain injury just kicked out. I lost track of that. Pastel. So the chalk pastel. So my uncle took a photo of me at his grave that I just absolutely love. And I said, I want to capture this for me. Nobody else but me. 
And I'm, why not do this in class? And I push myself away from everyone else. So I'm in a corner and I'm coloring in this thing the way it's supposed to be colored. My skin tones, my cami shorts, my black cutoff t-shirt, the headstone. And I get to the only thing left that I have not colored in yet was the grass, which is green. And the teacher walks up behind me and he says, hey, Richard, why don't you try to do a different color than green? I know that's what you're going to do because that's what's in the image. But if you do it a different color, it's going to make the audience and the person looking at this know, for one, that that something's different about this, that the artist who created this was most likely the one who was in this image as well. Like you can make it so that you're not in the room and they still know your story, which I thought was dumb because I'm not an artist. I didn't understand symbolism and, and how people who understand art read art. And so again, thinking this is kind of dumb. I didn't want to ruin this image. I still did it. I was like a good Marine. I said, you know, what? I'll do everything in red. And I chalk pastel the whole background bright red, not knowing why. Then I start, we have to do this critique. And again, I was very art dumb and didn't understand talking in front of people. I didn't want to talk in front of people, but I still pretty proud of how the art piece turned out, even with the red. So I put it up on the wall. They come to me and they say, Richard, do you want to talk about your piece? I said, heck no, I'm not going to talk about my piece. And then they said, students, what do you think Richard was doing with this piece? And one by one, they all had something to say. And one of the kids like, I think you put red in there because you're angry your friend died. And one other one said, I think you put red in there because you saw his blood. You were with him when he died. And that's the one that really got me. I was like, how would they know that with one color, that was me with my buddy when he died? And it just for a split second, I felt like I was connected to that. These 18, 19 kids who had no life experience at all, the ones that me and you think will never connect and understand with us, they understood me for a split second. And I was like, man, if I could do that with one color, what can I do with all the colors? What can I do with patterns? What can I like? What is this voodoo witchcraft that I just discovered? And so I decided to dive all in and just go for it. And I started really exploring. And it was so weird because I was getting excited to talk about things I never talked about, like my brain injury. None of them knew about my brain injury. None of them knew about my back issues. But I started doing art about my back issues, my brain injuries, and talking about with them, which is crazy to me. And so we had this representative from the School of the Arts of Chicago come down. And I never knew what the school was. It was in my own backyard, just three hours north, and never heard of it. And they were like, Walt Disney went here. George O'Keefe went here. I know Hugh Hefner went there. Phenomenal artist. All these people went there, these alumni. And I'm sitting here like, wow, I could be in this school? That sounds pretty neat. Maybe I'll try it. And my teacher, same awesome teacher, tried to get me not to go there, only because he wanted to get my heart broken because... You have to have a lot of money or study art your whole life. And I had neither. But again, optimism, man, I just went for it. I thought I would go up there. I would just sell myself. And I went up there with my nine pieces of art. Usually they want 15 to 20. I think seven of mine were still lives and they want all conceptual art. And so I had to pitch myself and I told them all the things I wanted to do. Not all the stuff I did, but I was like, here's what I want to do. I want you to know what it feels like to be blown up without being blown up. I want you to know what the loss of innocence award looks like through art, but I can't do that without your school. And I just sold myself hard. And the lady brought in another person to hear my story. And I told them too. And they said, you know what, let's give them a shot. And that was probably the best thing that ever happened here. Yeah, and there is so much more to your story and just, so, you know, obstacles that you've overcome. I know listeners are hearing a lot of these obstacles, but one of the things that's always amazed me about you is how you took something that worked for you. Like you could have the Art Institute of Chicago, you could have gotten the degree and you could have gone on and run a gallery somewhere. Like you could have, you could have taken this thing that's helped you and just let it help you, but then you're like, I can't keep this a secret. I have to use it to help other veterans. And that's how Creative Vet started. Yeah, it was honestly, because I was in it for myself. I honestly didn't really 
I was one of those guys that didn't really like other veterans, other Marines. Like I didn't, I saw them and I know someone was, I kind of just didn't want to talk to them really. When I was going through, I didn't know how much I was actually struggling in those moments. But when I graduated from the school there in Chicago and I looked back in my life and said, you know what? There was no other intervention that I had besides art education, music education. I went to the VA to get diagnosed, but I never really went back there and I didn't go to any other nonprofits. But now here I am. I had to do one-on-one speeches with my speech teacher in college. And now I'm out here going to get jobs and talking to people and going out and living a good life. What changed me? And I started just backtracking, looking at all these little things. And yeah, I had the opportunity. I actually went to a few a few of those job interviews with like where they have, it's a governmental one where they had FBI, they had CIA, they had the marshals, they had ATF, they had everyone there. And I went around and I started hitting out my resume a little bit. Then I was like, you know what? I don't like, what if another veteran is suffering like me, but they don't know art's an option and they don't know music's an option. And then, so I started Googling it and trying to find art programs and music programs that were kind of, I even got to the point because we do songwriting that I met Craig Morgan up in Wisconsin at this festival. And I got meeting group passes just to ask him if he knew of any organizations that did songwriting with veterans to tell them stories. And he said, no, and he's a veteran himself. And so I said, if Craig Morgan, who right at that moment too, this is like 2010, 2011, when he was like his heyday. And I was like, if a veteran at his stature in country music at this level doesn't know of any songwriting programs, they must not exist. So that's when I went back and I decided I need to do something. I need to create something because I didn't want veterans like myself to suffer and my, and we didn't even go into my full story, but the whole way I even got there is ridiculous and nobody else is going to take that path I did. So I was like, I need to make a path for them that they instantly see and they can't turn down. And so, yeah, Creative Hits was built off my story and it was how do I get veterans so excited that I outweigh their anxieties and their depression with this happiness excitement because I was the test dummy. I was the subject. I used to be like, okay. I couldn't do anything without a battle buddy. That's the first thing I need in my program, a battle buddy. I didn't have a lot of money to do anything. And I was going broke going to this private school because my Montgomery GI Bill didn't pay for private school. I need to be able to make sure everything's paid for. The excitement thing, I was like, I wouldn't go to a normal community like college art class, just a three-week thing, if I wasn't enrolled in school. So this has to be somewhere like very prestigious, kind of like the school there in Chicago. And so I'm taking all these things that made me move the needle to be a better human and just better mental health wise. I just said, you know what? First thing I'm going to do, I'm just going to take veterans to Nashville and I'm going to pair them with number one writers because who's going to turn down, no matter where you're at in life, who's going to turn down a free trip to Nashville with another veteran to experience music and write with a number one writer. And I was right because nobody has turned it down since we started. <laughs> and it, yeah, it just, it's something I needed to do. Honestly, I, it's another regret thing. If I would have never started it, I would have regretted it the rest of my life wondering if I could have saved lives. And again, I think that's one of the things that makes your story, and not to say unique, because there are many people that do that. What helps me, what works for me, and then how do I help other veterans find that? But really through your passion, and like you said, really to be honest, your optimism, you've not let it slow you down. And so you've talked about your journey and how art and creativity helped you. But for listeners who I may be surprised if they don't know about Creative Vets, but talk a little bit about Creative Vets, the work that you do in the programs and how others can get involved. Yeah, our main mission is to help empower wounded veterans to heal through arts and music. And it started with combat veterans, really. then we changed it to wounded veterans just to try to get encompassing more of the veteran who, because a lot of people didn't think they were in combat. Like a cook, who's on a forward operating base with 40 Rangers and he's losing people. 
like that's combat, but it's not combat related. So we had to change the wording just to make sure they also felt included into applying for our programs. But that's who we mainly serve for major programs. And we spend three weeks fully accredited. It's an art program in Chicago, mainly it's in Chicago. We have, we posted this in the School Learn to Chicago, Virginia Commonwealth University, University of Southern California, and Belmont University. And what we do is we pay for the veterans tuition, housing, food, all three weeks while they're at the school there in Chicago, learning how to tell their story for the first time. doesn't matter where you live in the country, we will fly you out to make sure you have access to it. And we teach this warrior brain to artist brain transition. So it's not art therapy, not music therapy. You're legitimately learning art education about your story. It is therapeutic in nature. What you're doing is going to like, you're going to be lost in this art form and it's going to make you not think about war. Then on top of that, we layer it with education that makes you more emotional, intelligent and in how to take away your triggers and attack things through art and thinking like an artist. And so it's a phenomenal program, mainly hosted in the summers. And then we have our four-day songwriting program in Nashville, where we'll fly veterans from anywhere in the country to Nashville, Tennessee. And now we write backstage at the Grand Ole Opry with number one songwriters and artists. We bring five veterans at a time, and they're all paired up with five battle buddies who've been through our program to mentor them for the whole four days that they're here, help them tell the story they need to tell. Not the one they think they want to tell, but the one they need to tell. The only way you get to that is peer-to-peer interaction, discovering what truly is going on with you. And it's a phenomenal program, but those are our two main ones that people know about. Some that they don't know about is like, we just got back from astrophotography at Big Bend with the McDonald Observatory, part of University of Texas Observatory, teaching veterans how to do astrophotography. We did partnership with the Dallas Museum of Art with the Art Box program and sending people down there. And so we do arts and music programming around the country. And we also do a ton of what I call B2B in the nonprofit space, where we partner with Mission Continues and Win Award Project and Camp Resilience and the National Ability Center, Heroes Haven, National Military Family Association. We actually build our programs inside of their programs. They're already phenomenal. And we include arts and music programming on top of it. And again, it's to attract more veterans. When we bring these hit writers to, to these organizations, they're getting a lot more people applying for the programs to meet songwriters and do that process. But they also get these touch points of just seeing their life-changing work. And it's a huge win-win for all of us because we all get to serve and just enhance our programs. So we do a ton of stuff. And we also, the songs that we create with veterans, we started releasing. So we have over 40 songs released that are free on any of the streaming platforms that veterans and spouses and anybody who wants to learn more about veterans to definitely listen to because there are songs about relationships with their kids for the first time, with relationship with their spouses, with Straight up war story songs, inspirational songs, almost anything you could think of we've written about and we've released it. You know how big a fan I am of the work that you do and the work that your organization does. For those who are listening who aren't familiar with Creative Vets, it is a phenomenal organization. And and I know you've heard it from a lot of people that that you really are doing a lot of things to help a lot of people. So if people wanted to find out more about Creative Vets, if they're a veteran, if they're a family member of a veteran, they think they want to help them get connected, how can they do that? Yeah, you go to creativevets.org and that's there's only one V. And so we get this a lot. People will spell it creative and the vets is two separate words. Just spell out creative and then just add a little TS to the end of that. But Instagram is one of the best ways to keep in touch in our newsletter. If you're on our newsletter or you're following our Instagram, because we're still a small team. We do it so much around the country. In fact, we have about 30 something programs or, or events happening between now and December 3rd. And there's only four full-time people on staff. So we, and we're all around the country. So newsletter, Instagram are two major resources. We try to update all of them, but those seem to be the quickest. So please follow us on there. Listen to our music, sign up for our newsletter. And you're going to find a lot more about us. Absolutely. I'm going to make sure all of those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. 
thank you for helping me share my story and spread the word. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that is free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. So Richard and I spent more time than usual on his story and not as much time on the work of creative vets. But as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Richard's story is so much a part of the work of the organization that I knew it would be helpful for you, the listener, to go on that journey with us. As he said, he was the model for the program. He went through the experience and then he built the program based on what he learned. One of the things I want to point out, however, is something that Richard said, which points to the unique nature of military and veteran mental health. In sharing his experience at boot camp, he identified all of the buddies he was in training with who immediately deployed and ultimately died in combat. Richard said, before I even touched down in war, I had survivor's guilt. Even without setting foot on a battlefield, without experiencing any direct combat whatsoever, he experienced traumatic loss of a uniquely military nature. When I talk about mental health, I'm sometimes asked why we should focus on trauma treatment in the military and veteran community and not address trauma broadly. This is especially the case when I talk about suicide prevention in the military. Don't we want to reduce suicide in the entire population? Don't the lives of those who didn't serve matter as much as the lives of those who did? My answer is, of course, we want to reduce suicide for everyone in our country. But the mental health needs of those who served, especially combat veterans, is so different that it requires special attention and unique skills to address them. This is one example. Richard's experience of traumatic loss and the guilt he felt for taking an amazing opportunity led him to make decisions years later to deploy to combat when he didn't have to. And even that decision, which may seem surprising to some, makes total sense to me because, as I mentioned, I had a similar experience and it would make sense to many who served. The other point that I'd like to make is how Creative Vets helps veterans tell the story they need to tell. Just like art helped Richard tell the stories he needed to tell, He's got countless examples of how art helps veterans tell their own stories, either through conceptual art or through music. He's got amazing examples, such as one veteran who created a miniature sculpture of a bedroom with a closet. The bed is messed up and unmade, the closet door is open, and there's a sleeping bag on the floor inside, demonstrating how the artist found that the only way that they could sleep is curled up inside a sleeping bag on the floor of their closet, which felt like the bunker they lived in when they deployed to combat. Even that brief description doesn't do the piece justice, and art can go deep and be so full of meaning, even to the point of the number of tiny hangers in the miniature closet representing the people they lost. And I know this not just from learning about Creative Vets as an organization, but experiencing it directly. I had the opportunity to experience the healing power of what Richard and his organization does. Several years ago, Richard reached out and asked if there were any veterans in Colorado who would like to write a song about their experiences. Creative Vets had been asked to come to speak at a local Bunker Labs event, and they usually wanted to share how they wrote a song with a local veteran, then perform that song at the event. They offered to find him someone, and he said what he really meant was that he wanted to come out and help me tell a story that I needed to tell. In 2009 and 2010, I was part of a unit that was providing security escort for logistics patrols in Regional Command East Afghanistan. Every two or three days, we would escort supplies from the main base in Jalalabad to one of the farthest forward operating bases in our sector, Fab Bostik, 120 miles away. Given the roads and the terrain, it would usually take six or eight hours to go the first 100 miles and another six to eight hours to go the last 20. The roads were narrow, unpaved, winding, with the mountains on one side and the Kunar River on the other. 
In the fall of 2009 and the spring of 2010, we knew that it wasn't a matter of if we would get attacked in those last 20 miles, it was when. October of 2009 was an extremely difficult time for our brigade. In the beginning of the month, one of the most significant battles of the war in Afghanistan occurred, the Battle of Kamdesh, also known as Kopkiti. The movie Outpost, books have been written about it, the most decorated battle with two medals of honor awarded and countless other medals for valor. These soldiers were in the cavalry squadron we supported at Fab Bostic. In October alone, our brigade lost nearly 20 soldiers to combat action, beginning with the eight casualties at Cop Keating and ending with the loss of someone in my unit, Sergeant Edaviguez Wolf, on October 25th. For a number of reasons, as we were planning this particular patrol, one of the vehicles was one crew member short. We usually ran a crew of four in a vehicle, but three was the bare minimum. One of our platoon leaders was going to be without a radio operator, and Sergeant Wolf volunteered to go on the mission. My role at the time was to build the crew list along with my fellow platoon sergeant. He and I went back and forth about whether or not to put a fourth person in that crew or not, and ultimately he convinced me, and we recommended that Sergeant Wolf join the crew. On that mission, a rocket-propelled grenade pierced the side of the vehicle, and we lost Sergeant Wolf. Every year on October 25th, I visit the Fort Carson Memorial that includes Sergeant Wolf's name and leave a white rose in her memory, just as Richard never misses a year of visiting his friend's headstone in Texas. My pain, and yes, my guilt at her loss, is still significant. And that's the story that I needed to tell, and that's the one that Creative Vets helped me tell. Over the course of a day, me, Richard, and a songwriting buddy that he brought with him went back and forth and wrote a song that's not only brought me healing, but it's been helpful for all of us who have felt a measure of guilt at her passing but also has been able to be shared with her family. I had the honor of being able to communicate with a couple of Sergeant Wolf's sisters who shared their appreciation for the song. If you're interested in hearing it, I have a link to the song in the show notes, and you can hear the song in its entirety after the end of this episode. Like all stories, there is much more to it than this, but I wanted to provide you an example of the work that Creative Vets does and how it has helped me personally. There are many paths to healing, and art is one of them, and Richard and Creative Vets is an example of how art is helping those who served tell the stories they need to tell. So hopefully you found this conversation beneficial. Again, a heavy subject, but also important. If you appreciated my conversation with Richard, let us know. Pop a review in your podcast player of choice and send us an email at info at We would appreciate knowing that you're listening, what you think, and what you would like to hear about in future episodes. For this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, I'd like to share the link to the Psych Armor course Traumatic Brain Injury. TBI is considered a signature wound of the recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, and its prevalence in military service members and veterans makes it an important topic to review for those who support veterans. You can find a link to the resource in our show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at the podcast app, as well as on psycharmer.org forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can find hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with Psychummer on social media and let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. Much appreciation to the team at Psychummer that makes this show happen. Carol Turner, Vice President of Strategic Communications, who keeps me on track and is an outstanding guest coordinator, and Emma Atherall, who provides valuable coordination and support. 
This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by Psych Armor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we request that you do, but make sure to let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well. Don't